lives but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Plato is recorded as having said, the measure of a man is what he does with power. My friends, we are all prisoners. We're being held hostage. Not just in America, but the world over. Our culture, our development as a race is being stifled. And the problem, as as it often has been down throughout history, is power. I'm not talking about the power of a dictator or the power of a government. I'm talking about the power of the electron. How many of you have been um, traveling at a conference or just on vacation and um, your entire existence for at least some part of your journey was spent seeking power? For your laptop, or your iPad, or your telephone. We're all on a constant quest for power, we geeks particularly. I carry a phone charger in my vehicle. I have one at the office at work. I have two downstairs in the living room and two upstairs in the bedroom so that my wife and I can always be plugged in because our phones can't make it through the day. My laptop gets four hours if I'm, if I'm lucky. But if I'm away at a conference or a training, four hours isn't nearly enough. So my entire existence is spent, um, instead of doing what I should be doing, I'm searching for an outlet, looking for power. You're in the airport, and you're looking for those chairs that have the electrical, out, electrical outlet nearby, just so you can charge your phone just enough to be able to get through the flight so that you can play your music or your games or whatever. We're, we're captives to the pitiful state of power. That's what this show is about. This episode of Sound and Fury is about electrical power, specifically portable electrical power. Did you know that the battery as we know it hasn't changed in nearly 200 years? Now, it's been uh, polished. It's been honed we have uh you know lithium ion batteries now and before that were nickel hydride batteries and before that were um alkaline uh, nickel cadmium batteries and before that alkaline batteries but you know what they're all still batteries a little bit of history uh ben franklin was uh the first person known to use the phrase batteries uh battery it, uh, he co- uh, created a collection of capacitors that he, he put together in a battery of, of power cells. And that's what your, uh, your batteries are um, in your phone and in your laptop. It's actually a collection of power cells. A, a battery is a collection of anything. You have a, a battery of tests or um, a, a battery of, of um, 
artillery, any collection of anything can be referred to as a battery. And Ben Franklin uh, created a crude collection of capacitors to power uh, an invention of his and called it a battery. But he was just working off of um, the work of a man almost 100 years before that uh, called Alessandro Volta. You may recognize the name. Uh, we refer to, we have a unit of, of electrical measurement called the Volt, named after Alessandro Volta. He discovered that if you stack different metals together and make them touch, uh, an electrical current will flow. His understanding was crude. He didn't know why it happened. He just knew that it happened. And he experimented with different ki- types of metals. And he, and he figured out that there are certain metals that when they come into contact with each other, produce a charge, a flow of electrons. That hasn't changed. We can go back even farther than that, about 6,000 years to what's called the, the Baghdad battery. The Baghdad battery is uh, um, one of the earliest versions of what we call a Leiden jar. That is uh, an acid with two metals suspended in it. And the, the acid serves as a conduit that uh, allows the electricity to pass between the positive and the negative, the anode, anode and, the, and the diode, not diode, um, cathode. You have a Leiden jar in your car. That big, heavy battery that sits in the engine compartment of your car is a modern-day Leiden jar. It's filled with, uh, uh, with acid and, and lead panels, uh, and the electricity flows between them. It's big, it's heavy, it produces uh, 12 volts in the U.S. That's our standard voltage. Thank you, Alessandro Volta, for lending your name to that. Uh, but can be hundreds of amps. And um, let's talk a little bit about the difference between voltage and amperage, because that's going to become important later on in our discussion. And people uh, often try to figure out ways to to explain the flow of electrons, be it uh, you know data bits in terms of, of internet access or or uh, electrical current. And uh, and the thing that we can best understand it by is uh, water. So let's say I've got a garden hose, just a typical hose that you would use to water your garden. All right. So you turn the faucet on. A certain amount of water comes out, let's say a gallon a minute. No matter what you do, you can't get more than a gallon a minute out of it. That's the capacity of that fire hydrant and of that hose. That would be the amperage. So if you're filling a swimming pool, it doesn't matter what you do, you're not going to fill it any faster with a garden hose because the capacity doesn't change. In electrical terms, the amperage doesn't change. But what you can change is the velocity. You can stick your finger over the end of it and close off the opening and make the water shoot out faster. It's not more water. In fact, it's slightly less water because your thumb is, is diverting some and it's, it's squirting out the sides. But you can get more done with that water. If you stick your thumb over the end of the water hose, you can use that to uh, crudely pressure wash the mud off the side of your house or your kid's muddy shoes 
We've all done that. Or you can get those little gun-like attachments that stick on to a water hose and let you adjust the nozzle. You're adjusting the speed at which the water comes out, the power, but not the amount of water. You can never get more water, more gallons per minute out of the system. That is voltage. So when we say a uh, 12-volt battery, that's, that's a certain amount of, of speed of the water coming out of the hose. But when we say 1,000 amps, that's a, that's a huge amount of water. So that would be analogous to um, a fire hydrant that a fireman would use. Okay? That's a lot more water. It may or may not be traveling any faster than the water coming out of your garden hose. There's just a lot more of it. So if you've ever been uh, walking across the floor in a dry, cold winter day and reached out to touch a doorknob and an electrical charge leapt from your finger to the door, uh, that was a charge of several thousand volts. But only a few thousandths of an amp. So... The uh, amount of electricity is very small. The force with which the electricity moved was very large. That's how a stun gun uh, or a taser, something like that, can use a 9-volt battery, low voltage, that you you put your fingers on it, it you won't even feel it. You stick it to your tongue, it'll tingle a little bit. Uh, But not enough... um, not, no, not enough amount of electricity there to bother you. Not enough amperage. It's in the milliamp range. But they step it through a bunch of transformers and crank it up to thousands of volts. And so what happens is you're pushing the electrons in that chemical reaction with that battery out very quickly with a lot of force. But you don't get more electrons. They're still, you know, think of it, it's, it's a crude measure, but think of the size of a 9-volt battery. Uh, think of that as how much it will hold. You can't get more out of it. So that's why stun guns aren't dangerous in the sense that they can electrocute you. Um, they just hurt a whole lot because we're cranking up the uh, speed, the intensity with which the electrons flow, but not changing the amount of electricity. There's not a lot of electricity held inside a battery, a 9-volt battery. Now, by the way, you internet geeks out there, you uh, electro electrical engineers who are listening to this and telling me I'm all wrong, I know. This is oversimplified to prove a point. So, you can save your hate-filled emails. They won't be read. I'm trying to, to prove a point, not to uh, educate on the physics of the flow of electrons. Years ago, I had... A water heater in my house that was a battery. How could that be, you might ask? Well, I, um, it was an old water heater that when it was originally put in um, in the uh, 40s uh, during uh, wartime and just, uh, just slightly post-war time in the U.S., copper was uh, not readily available. It had all been used in the war effort. So, uh, houses were uh, plumbed with aluminum pipe. Aluminum pipe works 
just about as well as copper. So the the water pipes coming out of the out of the wall were aluminum. And sometime later, a plumber had replaced that water heater and used the more modern copper fittings. So he soldered those two things together. So you had aluminum and copper. You had two different metals in contact with each other. Uh, by definition, that's a battery. It was a very small charge. Of course, it was never enough to not really even be noticeable until about 15 years of those electrons flowing eroded the, uh, the connection and it began to leak. The same sort of thing that happens when you leave batteries in a toy too long and it starts to, to the batteries leak. That's the phrase we use. It's not really leaking. It's a corrosion caused by the electrons uh, slowly eating away at the metals oxidizing and that sort of thing so in the crudest of terms my water heater was a battery now i say all that to say this the uh that chunk of acid and lead in under the hood of your car the uh six thousand year old baghdad battery uh, alessandro volta's stack of chunks of metal are really pretty close to the state of the art in mobile power we've we've refined that idea but we haven't come up with anything new now there's another type of of uh energy source or storage device that is closely related to the chemical battery and that's called a capacitor and a capacitor does essentially what a battery does in the only that it doesn't create a charge it's not you don't put two metals together and a charge is induced. It's a holding tank for a charge. So you can put electricity in, and um, the way to look at that is, uh, let's say you've got a, 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 a chasm, a, a, small, a small creek. That's a better way to put it. And you've got people on one end of the creek, and, uh, and they're stacking up. People are coming. They're, they're running out of a forest which is on fire. Well, that's a dark analogy, but I'm going to go with it. So the forest is on fire, and people are running out of the forest at a fairly regular rate, one every five seconds. The first guy who gets to the creek is scared. He doesn't want to jump over the creek because he's afraid he might fall in and drown. There's enough distance there. He could jump, but it would, it would be difficult for him, and he doesn't want to do it. So he stands there by the water's edge, and then people rushing out of the, the fire come up behind him before long there's not enough room for him to stand there anymore because the area has filled up so this last person runs out of the forest to get away from the fire there's literally no more room for him somebody gives him a good shove he jumps over the creek that is the uh, uh, analogy of what a capacitor does you put electrons in one end and there's a resistant media between the two metal plates inside a capacitor and it can hold up so much until finally there's just no more room for electrons and they start jumping over the chasm so once they jump over they initiate a flow of electrons but that capacitor is storing uh energy electrons in the meantime so you put some in and nothing happens and you put some more in and nothing happens you put some more in and nothing happens you put some more in and nothing happens and nothing keeps happening and nothing keeps happening and then suddenly there's a flow of electrons and, and the flow of electrons is equal to the amount that you're putting in until you turn it off 
then you've got these this flow of electrons, this this uh, bunch of electrons still in the capacitor. And once the people start jumping over the creek, they keep doing it. So it's like the the uh, flow of electrons will pull the rest out over the side. So this capacitor will keep giving out energy for a while after you've stopped giving it energy. So in this in the crudest sense. That is uh, a storage device, and that's what Ben Franklin put together. He put together a bunch of capacitors all together into what he called a battery, a, a power supply battery of capacitors. And that's the earliest recorded use of that term. You see this, uh, this sort of thing all the time. If you've ever had a toy uh, with, a, with a light that blinks, that was most likely, well, probably not today in the solid state world, but going back a few years ago, growing up in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, if you had a little robot with a blinking red eye, the odds are that was an LED connected to a resistor connected to a capacitor. And what would happen is um, energy would go into the capacitor until it couldn't handle it anymore. Then it would jump across the, the capacitor, light up the, the, the light for just a second, and then it would run out of power. And then the resistor would slow the flow of electrons back into it. So the bulb would go dark, and then there would be a beat of time as the electrons fought to get through the resistor. Then they would build up, and it would jump across the capacitor, and it would light up again. Super simple circuit for making a blinking light. There you go. That's something you could do uh, for a science fair with the kids sometime. Make a blinking light with a resistor, a capacitor, and a battery. Oh, and a light. I'm rambling, I know, but that's okay. So some batteries, they uh, people have discovered through experimentation, have the ability to reverse that flow. Some, uh, well, let's let's talk about when a battery runs dead. There's a couple of things that happen when a battery runs dead. Uh, if you've got a chunk of aluminum and a chunk of copper together, eventually the number, the the chemical reaction that creates the current just runs out. There's not enough atoms, I'm trying to keep this super simple, uh, that are different between the two metals to create an electrical charge. And eventually the battery will go dead. But what we've discovered over time is that some combinations of metal, the earliest combination we used was nickel and cadmium, uh, you could actually reverse that and put electrons back into it and sort of um, that chemical reaction would repair itself. And you could uh, charge the battery back up and use it again. The trouble with uh, nickel cadmium and their um, later uh, progenitors, nickel metal hydride, was that uh, every time you did that, the chemical reaction would uh, create some bubbles, sort of like dropping an Alka-Seltzer tablet into water. That's a chemical reaction there. And that would create some bubbles. Um, and those bubbles would build up over time and cut down the surface area between the two pieces of metal. And that's why after a while, um, your battery didn't take as full a charge as it used to because there's, there's bubbles in between the two contact surfaces. They're not connecting as well as they used to and not producing the electrons that they used to. And we've, uh, we learned that with, for example, nickel hydride batteries, you could uh, do what's called deep cycling, completely run them dead and uh, sort of burn up those bubbles then you could recharge them 
and things would uh, would work well for a while until those bubbles started to build up again. So the uh, advice at the time was to deep cycle your batteries periodically. Let them completely run dead every, you know, 10 or 20 charges or whatever it was. And in fact, uh, early laptops were designed to do that. They would let the batteries discharge, even if you left it plugged in all the time. The uh, the batter, the, the circuitry in the... Um, the battery in the laptop would would stop charging the uh, the battery for a while and let it run down. So if you ever had an old laptop, like in the you know early 2000, 1998, 99, 2000 around there, and you had it plugged in for three days and you unplugged it and it only had forty percent battery, that's what was happening. You got it caught during that deep cycling time where it was trying to repair the batteries. The modern batteries we use now, the lithium ion. Um, don't have that issue. They don't build up the bubbles. But their downside is, if you ever run them completely dead, they're gone forever. They can never take another charge. As long as you keep the reaction going, flowing electrons back and forth, you can discharge and recharge those things almost infinitely. But if you ever let it go completely dead, then the battery is ruined forever. So... That's why that advice has changed. You used to be able to, you used to be told, let your batteries charge or discharge completely every so often. And now, you know, phone manufacturers and laptop manufacturers say, don't ever let your batteries discharge completely. And in fact, the modern battery packs in your phone or in your laptop uh, have some uh, fairly important uh, intelligent circuitry inside them that on a cell by cell basis and, and, you know, this is this is my phone. I'm holding up for anybody watching the video. In the battery inside that phone, uh, which is you know three inches by two inches, maybe uh, there are thousands of individual cells, and each one of those individual cells is controlled by uh, on an individual basis by a microchip, and the chip decides when that cell needs to be charged and when it needs to be discharged, and and when it's given enough, and and after a while, um, if it gets to the point where, uh, well the the running the the running of that circuitry in the battery uses some of the power that's why you can can charge your phone fully and say you go on vacation and leave your phone at home say it's your work phone and you come back and now you're at 30% battery life and you didn't touch it well the circuitry inside the battery itself was using energy so what'll happen is if your battery gets really low your phone will just shut down, right? That's not actually the phone doing that. That's the battery uh, sending a message to the phone saying, I got nothing left. I have to shut down. And if you leave your phone in that discharge state, the circuitry in the battery itself will suck the last of the juice out of the cells and your battery will never take another charge again. It's ruined. Because even when you plug it back in, it's gone. You've used the last inch of that. So the... Uh, the Tesla electric cars suffer from that problem. If you ever let your Tesla Roadster, um, yeah, the the hundred or so of you in the world that have them, if you ever let it run completely dry, completely dead, just die on you, you got to replace the batteries. They're ruined forever, and that's about fifteen to thirty thousand dollars worth of batteries. Batteries have all kinds of problems. You know, they have this whole discharging issue and you got to manage them. They're heavy. Um, they're made, they're solid metal. 
or uh, or acid and metal. Uh, they're uh, they're heavy for their size. You know, anybody who's ever held a battery knows that it feels dense. It feels heavy for its size, and so uh, that seems um, you know unnatural to you. It's because they're made up of really dense metals. Cadmium, for example, is a uh, a slightly radioactive, highly dense metal. Um, lithium is another one, and and we it's not even pure lithium; it's an ion. Hence the name lithium ion that's, that is uh, even more dense. So these batteries are super dense. They're heavy. They add weight to the phone. Um, there's heat that has to be discharged just by doing it. So the world is being held hostage by batteries. But there is good news. A, uh, uh, there's a thing that's been around for a while called a supercapacitor. What a supercapacitor does is store a tremendous amount of energy. All right, so let's go back to my uh, water hose analogy. It can store a swimming pool worth of, of, of electrons and release it to you through your garden hose. So instead of filling up your garden hose, it's the other way around. So what you do is you, you hire uh, those guys that fly helicopters over forest fires and can dump thousands of gallons of water a second they fly over your backyard, drop thousands of gallons of water into your pool, and it's filled instantly. And then it can drain out slowly over time. That's what a supercapacitor does. They're, they're called supercapacitor because their capacitance, their ability to hold, their capacity is huge. And then they can release that. Now, the danger of that is they can also release it immediately and kill you. So there has to be some circuitry in there and some safeguards to control the rate at which um, they release their energy. But you can buy now like flashlights. Um, they're expensive and they're still sort of novelties uh, that are supercapacitor powered. And you plug them into the wall for like five seconds and you get hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of battery or, or energy out of them, out of the, the capacitor. And then when it finally runs dead, there's no damage done. It's not like the the uh, smart batteries we have. There's no there's nothing in there that can be ruined if it runs dry. It's fine. And there's no there's nothing super special in there that has to keep it fresh or or keep it going like in the lithium ion batteries we have today. You you just have a couple of resistors and some some coils and some things in there to to regulate the flow, but it doesn't have to be super fancy. So then you take this now depleted capacitor, you plug it in again for just five seconds um, to something, and it'd be sort of the equivalent of like when you turn your microwave on and your kitchen lights dim just a little bit, that's because your microwave is like a thousand watts or more. That's what you'd be pumping in. Um, Ten hundred watt light bulbs all going into that thing at once, but only for about five seconds, and then you can use it for a long time. The trouble is... Um, supercapacitors are difficult and expensive to make, and there hasn't really been a good way to make them um, in mass, on a massive scale just yet, until just very recently. Uh, some fellows um, at, um, I'm just blanked on the university. I had it in my notes, and now I can't find it. Uh, it's at a, a university team. <laughs> um figured out a way to make graphene. Let's talk a little bit about graphene. 
Uh, supercapacitors are, ca- are, are, are one of the best ways to make a supercapacitor is out of graphene. What is graphene? Graphene is a sheet of single carbon atoms lined together. Now, carbon atoms have, if you look at them through an electron microscope, uh, they look sort of like um, a nut, a, a hex nut. Not not a like a walnut, but like a, a, a hardware nut. They're, they have a hexagonal shape, sort of like a, a stop sign. That's a better way to look at it here in the U.S. Sorry, uh, the rest of the world where stop signs, I think, are around. But here in the U.S., a, a stop sign is, is uh, hexagonal or octagonal, excuse me. Uh, and so graphene, a, a carbon atom, a single carbon atom is octagonal, eight sides. And you lay these things side by side so that they're just touching one atom wide, one atom um, high. No atoms are stacked on top of each other. They're just laid out side by side. And what you end up with is something that looks a little bit like a chain link fence or chicken wire. You have a lattice of little octagons all stuck together. That's called graphene. Graphene is, uh, is fairly difficult to make because, you know, atoms are, uh, uh, carbon atoms are tiny and you have to arrange them in a very specific way and they have to be one atom high. You stack two atoms on top of each other. It messes with the, the, the electrical properties and it can't be a capacitor anymore. So graphene is expensive and difficult to make until very recently. And that's where the, uh, the researchers at this university, I can't remember, and maybe I'll remember and put it in the notes uh, when I post this, uh, came up with a method to create graphene. And, and you know, it's the, that simple uh, is better mentality. They started looking around and saying, what do we have to work with right here? We don't have... Uh, you know, we're, we're college students and college professors, uh, you know, working off of a, a, a college budget. We don't have a multi-million dollar research budget. What can we do? So uh, one guy or a team of guys uh, came up with the brilliant um, idea of putting a carbon-saturated liquid solution on a standard DVD tray, like on your computer, a DVD writer. So they're using off-the-shelf, like a you know an, a, a Dell computer with a DVD writer in it, and a blank DVD with with or a, or a blank piece of piece of plastic the size and shape of a DVD. They put a dropper full of this uh, carbon-rich solution that they came up with, and they spin it, and then they hit it with the laser in the uh, DVD writer that you can buy for thirty bucks. And what, what, after a while, after their process is done, you have a sheet of graphene, one atom thick sheets of um, carbon atoms laid out in the size and shape of a DVD. And you literally just peel that off and you have a sheet of graphene made out of parts anybody can get very cheaply and very quickly. Now, this only, you know, exists right now in their laboratory. But the idea is that they take this process and, uh, and not using a DVD, but using, um, you know, a large centrifuge and, and the same class C type lasers that would be in a DVD. And you could scale this thing up and make um, supercapacitors 
cheaply, easily, um, on a massive scale. So the upside here is in a few years, when these guys hammer out the process and then make millions selling it to some uh, uh, energy company, let's, you know, let's say Duracell is going gonna, is gonna to buy the, the idea, and there's going to start packaging supercapacitors in like a little battery pack that you put in your phone now. But here's the difference. Your phone will charge in about 30 seconds and will run uh, at full power with the screen on, doing all the things that drains your phone battery now for about three weeks. And then when you drain it, you drop it back into a charging dock again for 30 seconds and you get another three weeks out of it. So that's going back to the days of like, you know, the Sony Walkman where you, you put your, your AA batteries in and you were good for, uh, for days. You know, we've kind of forgotten that as our devices have gotten, have gotten so hungry, we've just gotten used to the fact that a smartphone, an iPhone, an Android phone, a BlackBerry, uh, whatever you've got, a Windows phone, is, is going to last 12 hours on a good day if you're not using it much. But if you're actively using your phone, if you're playing, you know, Temple Run or Words with Friends or Angry Birds all day, you're going to get three hours out of it. If you're watching video or if you're actually, I don't know, I know this is a novel concept, but some people actually use their phone to make calls. I've, I've heard of that happening. But uh, in those situations, you get, again, four to five hours of battery life and your phone is yelling at you. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. And it'll completely shut down on you. So people carry spare batteries with them or spare chargers. In just a few years... We will look back on that and remember that as quaint. Remember when we used to have to put aluminum foil on the antenna on the television and have somebody hold it just right so dad could watch the game? It's going to be that kind of conversation, only it's going to be about remember when we had to charge our laptop every three or four hours and we were constantly walking around with spare batteries and we had uh, chargers in the in the, the pockets of, of everything we owned and we always had to sit at the conference next to the wall with the, the one wall in the conference room that has an electrical outlet and people were camped out at it and fighting over it. We'll remember that uh, nostalgically because the supercapacitor is going to free us from the tyranny of mobile power. And that's pretty cool. I'm excited about the possibility of the supercapacitor. It's cheap. It's infinitely recyclable. It's carbon. You can make it. It's non-toxic. Your, your body is made up largely of carbon. You could probably eat a sheet of graphene and it wouldn't hurt you. Probably wouldn't taste very good. So you have this, this, oh, by the way, carbon is, as far as we know it, the number one most uh, common element in the galaxy, in the, in the universe, as we understand it. Carbon is everywhere. So we're going to have this cheap, readily available, uh, near-infinite power supply, power source. So let's say we're going to... Um, Mars. We're going to take ourselves to Mars. The way we do it right now is with solar power, because once you get outside the Earth's atmosphere, there's lots of solar energy. But solar power on its best day 
is about 10% efficient. You lose about 90% of the sun's energy to heat or diffraction or reflection. It's just gone. But in a few years, you know, in my children's lifetime, maybe not in mine, we'll be able to run a, a space shuttle that'll hold six or eight people like the, you know, like the shuttle Challenger uh, and Discovery and those, those now retired shuttles did off of uh, supercapacitor packs. And we'll be able to stack enough in the hold, you know, the, the something the, the size of the, the solid rocket booster on the space shuttle would hold enough graphene to take you to Mars and back. That's pretty cool. Even if, even if you don't want to go to Mars, that's pretty cool. Uh, let's let's uh, bring it down home a little bit. How about being able to take your microwave camping with you? You don't need to plug it in. You can get 1,000 watts of energy uh, off of a little uh, supercapacitor battery pack. How about when there's a flood? You know, when Hurricane Katrina uh, wiped out most of New Orleans, uh, power was an issue. Our, our uh, entire culture runs on electricity, and they didn't have any. So you know, they put generators where they could, but generators were depending on you know fossil fuel, gasoline, and they couldn't get that. The pipelines were messed up. The roads, you couldn't get a truck in. There was no way to do it. And we're going to be able to transcend all of that. We're going to have clean, um, cheap, high-power, readily available energy. Electric cars will finally become worthwhile. The problem with an electric car today is that a third to two-thirds of the weight is battery. And because it's so heavy, it takes more energy to run it. It's that, it's that uh, cyclical uh, problem. It just eats you alive. You, you need a bigger battery because the car is heavier. But the bigger battery is heavier, so you need a bigger batter, battery. But we're going to be able to transcend that. And we're going to have something, you know, maybe the size of three or four of the, the batteries you have now that start your engine in the morning. Say, tucked away in the trunk. And that'll run you at highway speeds, 80, 75 miles an hour, whatever, uh, for four or 500 miles, like you do a, ga- a tank of gas now. Then you pull up to a station, um, you plug your car into an electrical outlet for 50 seconds, less time than it takes to run to the bathroom and get a soda and a candy bar, and you come back, you're fully charged and ready to go another 500 miles. All because these guys had the idea of making graphene with a DVD writer. That's pretty cool. 